0: You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Mary Tressler chats with Josh Clark, founder of design agency Big Medium, formerly known as Global Moxie. Josh talks about the changing nature of his work as the world itself becomes more and more of an interface. And related to this increasing connectivity of humans and the world around us, he stresses the importance of avoiding data rash, making information a tool for us rather than the reverse. He also notes the importance of play in this time of rapid technology growth. He says it's really important for designers to step away from the day-to-day grind to truly experiment and splash in the puddles. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Mary Tressler. I'm here today with Josh Clark, who is a designer and developer, founder of design agency Big Medium, formerly known as Global Moxie. Josh is an author, a speaker, and a trainer. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. What a treat to be here! Thanks, Mary. <laughs> um, I'd like to start off with um, hearing a little bit about Big Medium, which sounds like it's a fairly new company or agency. Could you tell me more about it and what you're working on these days?
1: Sure. I, you know, it's it's really the same stuff that I've been doing for years in terms of it's a it's a small boutique digital agency that takes on design projects for uh, a limited set of. Big mainstream companies um, every year, and so uh, the last several years, I've done projects for companies like, well, O'Reilly Media. We, uh, <laughs> we just did a uh, finished working on a big redesign of, of the site that's just starting to roll out in beta, which is fun to see, um, as well as um, you know companies like Time Inc. and TechCrunch and Entertainment Weekly. Uh, but over the, the last uh, couple of years, I've found the nature of my work has been changing um, as well as my, my interests. and I think the culture of, of digital design is changing too. to be start moving off of screens. and it felt like a, a, a opportunity to redefine my own work. and so I also did that with my agency and changed its name to Big Medium. The idea of that being that the internet itself is a is a pretty big medium, and in fact, starting to expand beyond the bounds that we've traditionally associated with, which is the screen, mm-hmm. and increasingly, as we're seeing connected devices, you know, sort of the, the smartphones were kind of the leading edge of this, but now we're starting to see, you know, wearables and Internet of Things. This idea that uh, the internet is becoming embedded in our environment. Uh, and in everyday objects uh, means that anything can be an interface. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: so my work is starting to engage more and more with that truly big medium, um, which is the, the world itself. You know, finally, the world is, is the interface, which of mm-hmm. course it always has been, but now we're actually able to create digital experiences that belong to the world that we actually move in instead mm-hmm. of us having to dive into the screens.
0: Right, right. I love that that phrase. The world is the interface. It's so true, and it, you're right. It has been there all along, but I think it's more obvious to more people.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, you know, as as digital designers, we've kind of been distracted for, by the in the last say, 30 years, by this kind of temporary and arbitrary universe of the graphical user interface, and mm-hmm. one of the exciting things about sensor-based design and moving moving interaction off of the screen and, and into everyday objects is that we actually get to start creating experiences that more rhyme with the way that our brains have evolved over the last bajillion years. <laughs> I, believe, I believe bajillion is the uh, scientifically <laughs> accepted
0: I'm uh, certain of it. Number. <laughs> That's great. Um, I read a post that you uh, wrote not too long ago um, where you talk about, I love this phrase, data rash. Um, can you tell me more about what you mean by that and the role that designers can play in in minimizing the outbreak, I assume? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the idea
1: of it is sort of, you know, a data rash is kind of this uh, unexpected, unwelcome, and certainly unsightly eruption (laughs) of data and notifications on your skin, you know, which is is the danger, I think, maybe the fear of this idea that, you know, I mean, as anything can be an interface, the horrible... potential outcome of that is that mm-hmm. we have everything screaming for our attention, including, you know, now wearables that we're putting on our own body. We don't, you know, want our skin to constantly be itching with this rash of notifications, <laughs> right? Which unfortunately I think for a lot of app makers, you know, we all feel this on our phone. And I think that early adopters with smartwatches are finding this too, where this the defaults are just way too many notifications for just inane you know, pieces of information that really aren't urgent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how do we uh, both as consumers as well as designers start being a little bit smarter and gentler to ourselves uh, and to our customers with how we, you know, really present uh, information mm-hmm. and, and data? I mean, you know, I think in, in a sense, we're in this, this period of luxury where we have so much access to information and, and it feels like this, this pleasure. But you know I, I think that one of the real luxuries is is finding ways that we can actually protect ourselves from information to find, you know, oasis where the information is is a tool for us rather than the reverse.
0: Right, right. Who's controlling who? Well, that is interesting. I think it's um it it feels noisy right now. And yeah. and you know, I think the noise has to happen to some degree do you do you i mean in terms of figuring out what works and what doesn't and where the balance is
1: well you know I, I think that right now we're in this period of sort of fetishization of data mm-hmm. um as and I, I mean that kind of in all aspects this idea that that we as just you know regular in our everyday lives you know want to have more data there's sort of pop of information around um, exercise and quantified self, for example. It's mm-hmm. like, let's, let's count every step that we're taking. And, <laughs> and I think as businesses, let's collect every piece of data because, you know, then we'll really know the answers. And I think that we are starting to turn the corner from realizing, you know, it's not really about the data, but it's about what insights can we get from it. Mm-hmm. Particularly when you look at consumer products, right now there's there's kind of this this sort of sensor-based thing of you know for example step counters and stuff like that where you know there's sort of this immediate sense of empowerment oh great i'm in control of my information i know what's happening but then quickly you're kind of like well what do i do with it right so i think that there that you're right that it's it's a useful thing to kind of gather this information to share this information but i think particularly as the people who create products around this stuff the emphasis has to be on not the data but the insight I think it's the same for when we think about, you know, creating smart objects, smart homes and stuff like that. It's not so much let's make everything talk. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about the talking. It's about the conversation. Right. Which is Maybe it seems like a semantic difference, but it's really about what's the value of what's being said? Because Mm -hmm. I don't want home automation. I don't want a smart home. That's not my goal. That's hopefully a means to an end of having my environment be a more peaceful harmonious place where things can where you know every object in my house has this feng shui ability to just sort of do the right thing because it's more aware of the environment that it's in mm-hmm. but it's the goal is not a smart home that just seems sort of creepy right
0: right there's
1: this, there's this great line oh gosh who said it? dan gold i think you know how smart does your bed have to be before you're afraid to go to sleep at night <laughs>
0: that's great and that is creepy
1: (laughs) well you know i mean i think there is this sort of this anxiety that people have when they start to think about the objects in their environment watching them or you know or who's behind that right is it google or amazon or some other sort of corporate entity you know what are they doing with this stuff or the sense of a loss of agency you know it's like well if my house starts taking care of anything you know Am I a cog in the wheel? Uh, you know, I think that there is there are a number of anxieties around these things, and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of these tropes of science fiction dystopia, you know, of the machines taking over. That oh. I think we need to be sensitive to as
0: designers. Sure, sure. You mentioned uh, step counters. What what do you perceive as the biggest opportunities for wearables?
1: Well, you know, uh, I. think... There are, there are a couple of different things about them, right? One is there are, are sort of this, this, that you can attach a sensor to your body and that there can be some in useful information that you can get. You know, and, and, and I think there are some, some things that are really health related. I think, uh, you know, I'm certainly not the first to say this, that, mm-hmm. that it feels like the, the medical community and healthcare community have a lot of opportunity here. From some things like sensors that, that measure um, how much uh, sun exposure you're getting, you know, so that you can actually mm-hmm. start to um, uh, take control of or, or just be aware of the, the sun's effects on your, on your body. Or a project that I worked on um, originally called Asmapolis and now called Propeller Health, which is this little um, Bluetooth gizmo that you put onto an asthma inhaler hmm. that helps people with asthma control their asthma. Uh, And understand, you know, because as with so many things, we often think that we're in better shape than we actually are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every time you take a puff, which means that you're having an attack, right? Every time you take a puff from your inhaler, it registers the time and the place of that. And uh, both of which are are kind of relevant in understanding the causes of your asthma. Mm -hmm. And then you get these automated sort of reports that say, that give you suggestions and let you know how well your asthma is controlled. but powerfully because these things are distributed through clinics. You can have you know thousands of these things in a in a community, hmm. and you can then have information like, oh, an hour after people go through this part of town, you see an uptick in uh, attacks. This is there's a problem in mm-hmm. this place. This is, so you can get epidemiological information at the community level of of um, uh, you know what are the causes of of disease, or in this case asthma, in your in your community? Oh wow! So I think that, the, and one of the things that's nice about that, right, is is that it, it just fits into how you normally live your life. You don't have to do anything special except have this little cap on your inhaler. Right. And I think that's one thing. is you know that as we start to Embed sensors into our lives, uh, carry them, or put them on our body. It's, you know, it shouldn't have to change our behavior too dramatically. Technology should bend to our lives instead mm-hmm. of to the reverse. Mm-hmm. But I think that that kind of information tracking, especially when it's coupled with specific insight, you know, here's how your asthma is controlled or not. Here's here's or some apparent causes for it. Mm-hmm. Versus some things like just step counters or things like that. You know, it's like after a while, you're like, oh, okay, great. I, I did this many steps. Or I, I think s- actually maybe the sleep trackers are an even better example. Great. My sleep tracker tells me that I slept, that I had really crummy sleep last <laughs> night. You know? well, I already knew that. And I don't have any insight into the cause of it. You know, there's no kind of connection. Right. Um, so I think that that's one thing that's, that's frustrating. And of course, there's the whole smartwatches. Thing now, which is beyond sensors, but you know now it's actually a way for me to get information. So it's output, mm-hmm. not just input.
0: Interesting. Do you own one?
1: Uh, yeah, I've got uh, I've got an Android Wear, and I'm waiting for my Apple Watch.
0: Oh, nice. So that leads me to my next, which is a somewhat personal question. Um, can you talk about what your relationship is with technology? I'm always curious to hear what how people who work in the field. Um, manage their ability or inability to unplug? And do you unplug? Uh, how do you manage that friction between wanting to be connected and, and wanting to be present?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I, I struggle with both of those things as much as anybody. I mean, I'm, um, I'm, I'm mindful of my mindlessness. <laughs> <you should say. laughs> like I'm aware that it's a problem. I beat myself up uh, about being more plugged in than I ought to be. Um, I, I, think that I, you know, I, I, do sort of consciously, uh, you know, put my phone away in the evenings and, and try not to take it out. My family, uh, doesn't follow that rule so much. So you'll <laughs> sort of see the TV, the, the laptop, the phone and the tablet all, all out. Our 15 year old daughter has, is quite, um, talented at juggling many devices and screens at, at once, uh, <laughs> despite, you know, sort of suggestion of, of actually, you know, making eye contact with us. She actually, I mean, I exaggerate a little. She's, she's, she's she thinks a lot about what her, uh, diet is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'm certainly not alone in kind of struggling with my little phone addiction. And it turns out that on average, uh, we spend three hours and 16 minutes a day looking at our smartphone screens you know it's over 20 percent of our waking lives are have our eyes glued to these little glowing rectangles you know looking at them over 200 times a day um and uh i think that it's an interesting thing you know how how do we wean ourselves Mm -hmm. off of this i mean even on weekends i mean there's this Anyway, I I'm, I do a poor job of trying to unplug from these things, although I I do try a bit. So we're as we're talking about to go into the Memorial Day weekend, I'm going to sort of try to put these put you know keep my my phone turned off.
0: Right, it is. It's a struggle. It's um you're afraid you're missing something. I think many yeah. of us feel that way. But um I'd like to to move into uh, sort of a different topic here, although it it's, it talks about balance, and that is. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what advice you have for designers um, who are trying to balance between working on stuff that really matters and uh, giving themselves the time to experiment and play, which I think you mentioned in a in a blog post, or um, I saw somewhere in um, reading up on you, Josh, in um, yeah. <laughs> stalking you. Yeah. Um, but you know that you mentioned somewhere, you know, in in. Other people have said it that the play is such an important part of the creative process, but there needs to be a balance. can you can do you have any words of wisdom for designers that are listening to this?
1: well, i I, I do think that at periods of change and opportunity, it's really important to spend some time experimenting and just mm-hmm. splashing in puddles. And you know, I, I think that, for example, we're we're at a this moment now where we've got you know this ability to, Embed essentially smartphone brains into all kinds of different things, or or put sensors uh, into objects that, that our phones and, and other smart you know computers can can talk to. Uh, it, it means that we have this sort of period of ex- exploration where mm-hmm. we can figure out what does it mean to, to to wear data, to wear computers, to be surrounded by objects that have some sort of uh, intelligence. So, I think that we've we've got this opportunity to really to change the way that we think about relationships to to information and data and interaction and basically physical interfaces to digital systems mm-hmm. And I think that it's really important to step back from the the work that we typically do day in and day out of well, here's another website, here's another smartphone app um, to play with those possibilities. And I really do mean, Play. I think that that's important. I, I take a lot of inspiration from game and toy designers, um, who, after all, often are making these physical objects, which is you know kind of our new um, realm of, of of inquiry and exploration right now. Mm-hmm. Um, to to, I, th- I think that game and toy designers are the best interaction designers we've got. That their entire brief is to make something that is engaging and pushes new boundaries but is also fun and easy to pick up and doesn't require a giant user manual to to read so at least to get started sort of to become a uh, to to get hooked on on this new interface that they create it's actually it's easy and it's fun and you know it may be challenging as time goes on you may have to learn some things but but you get it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so i think that actually making some toys and some games uh, as ways to test new interactions is actually really useful. It unties you from the serious, you know, best practices that we've learned from from our regular work and frees us to, to sort of just really try some new things mm-hmm. and then bring that back into our our work. You know, so, so I look at, at products, you know, one of my favorite examples is um, is drum pants, which is, you know, <laughs> these little sensors that you put into your pants that then you can, like, play your leg like a drum machine you know with all these different kinds of sounds and that's like wow that's really what the world needs you know let's not solve you know the water crisis or world hunger let's make more drum pants so you know don't get me wrong this is not this is not sort of our end goal for the kinds of things that we should be making but when you sort of think of it it's sort of like this is an experiment in you know, gestural physical interface of doing something that all of us naturally do sometimes, which is just, you know, tap out a rhythm on our leg or whatever, and saying, what if we just turned that into an instrument? What if we actually wired that up for actual sound? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that sort of that kind of thinking leads to all kinds of interesting things. And you know, you might sort of say, Well, man, you know, that kind of interface seems like a toy. That's childish. You know, that's not serious computing. But you look back at you know the, how people were talking about the mouse in the '80s, and every serious computer user said, "That's a toy. That's mm-hmm. not from real computing." And um, uh, Ben Evans has this great line uh, talking about this stuff, which is that uh, you know the future always looks like a toy to people who are too comfortable with the past.
0: Ooh, I like that.
1: I think it's just really smart, and and lines up just with this idea that. Um, you know, that, that we have to um, take some risks and do some things that sort of feel a little bit silly, not as the goal, but as, as a, a, a way of experimenting, of improving our practice.
0: Right, right. Well, back to your earlier comment, the insights that you draw from it. I mean, that's, that's sort of the key there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as my internet stalking continued with you, <laughs> I was watching one of your talks. I think it was at an event apart. Um, but you were talking about physical interactions with physical devices. Can you explain a bit more about what you what you were referring to there?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the big challenges that we have right now as we get more and more devices and interfaces in our lives. And it's not just about dealing with one computer mm-hmm. or even just a computer and a smartphone, but a tablet and a, and a TV and a, a watch and all these other things, is that we have this challenge of how do we... Move data between these devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because right now, you know, most of us, are, this is going to be really familiar. Are constantly, just emailing crap to ourselves, right? It's like, right. oh, I need this over here. Someone's going to email this URL, or you know, or I'm going to text this thing. You know, my contact information. to Someone sitting right next to me to send that information all the way up into space, just to move it over. You know, two feet. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be actually that this problem was pretty. You know, was kind of solved 15 years ago. For anybody who had a Palm Pilot, it was super easy just to beam information to, from one device to another. And it mm-hmm. was this physical interaction. That was one of the things that was great about that early app bump that eventually got acquired by Google, and we haven't heard much from it since then. But re- remember, it was just like, oh, you can actually have this easy physical interaction of just you know bumping your phones together, and, right? You know, the contacts exchange. Whatever happened to that? Uh, well, Google acquired them. And, um, uh, you know, it would be great to see if something like that got cooked into Android or at the operating system level, but I don't know if that's yeah going to happen or not. But th- Because that's really, in order for, for this thing, this sort of easy, effortless exchange between devices to happen, like a, a bump-like exchange, it kind of has to be down at the framework level of the operating system in mm-hmm. order to get real, you know, th- in order for it to be really present. Right. But one of the things that I love about that is that it recognizes that these are not abstract, two-dimensional screens, but these are physical objects in our lives. You know, and, and how can we start to um, to bring that interaction in off the screens? So we're not just fumbling through um, buttons and screens to send information back and forth. Sure. But to do something as simple as you know, tapping information from my phone into my laptop. That's a, a hack that. Uh, my friend and studio mate Larry Legend and I worked on together, just um, putting together this thing that that let you, you know, if you're listening to music on your phone uh, and you get to your desktop, you can just tap the song from your phone into your uh, into your computer, like physically shake it out of your phone into your <laughs> computer, and it just picks up at the same at the same moment of the song. Oh, playing. that's awesome! Uh, and it's this kind of thing. I'm just sort of saying, you know, these are actually just two physical objects in my life that happen to have these superpowers, but can't I just treat them? physically. And the idea of this is, you know, again, trying to make um, our interaction, you know, the last several years we've been, we've been focused on making um, the digital physical. We've been etching our digital interfaces onto these glass slabs and then carrying them out into the world. And it turns out that these glass slabs also are able to talk to the world through sensors, GPS, microphone, camera, and so on. And we're starting to have these, these digital, um, this digital presence in the physical world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the reverse is starting to happen, right? Where the physical is starting to have a digital presence as we embed sensors into everyday objects, and the the opportunity is is to shift that point of interaction off of screens and into the object itself. So mm-hmm. that, you know, as we manipulate this this physical object or this this thing at home, that it it can actually respond with sort of some digital presence.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: You've talked to, to David Rose, who, yes. who at the MIT Media Lab uh, and done some interviews with him. And He wrote this book called Enchanted Objects last year, which I think just really kind of captures the spirit of it, which mm-hmm. is that we've got centuries of experience of, of telling ourselves the stories of, what, of how objects would work if they were magic. And essentially, that's what we're doing right now, is we're making magic mirrors and magic you know, thermostats and mm-hmm. magic watches. Uh, and uh, kind of thinking about, you know, how does that manipulation of the physical object have this sort of magic effect, which is to say an effect in the digital realm.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. It feels natural and magical all at once. That's a, such a great book. I really, really enjoyed that. It's really fun.
1: And I, and I think that he's right that it's like, we don't have to invent new interfaces. We've been telling ourselves the stories for hundreds, thousands of years of how, the, of how these interfaces should work. We know what a magic mirror should do. Right, right. But, you know, I think that it's worth saying, though, that there are two kinds of magic, right? One is this this notion of magic that I think is really popular and maybe people have a little too much faith in right now, which is auto-magic, right? That things auto happen, that this is um, data-driven, um, predictive interfaces, passive interfaces, where, you know, based on data or based on sensor information, the system does something for you, right? Mm-hmm. And, And it doesn't work that well yet, right? Which is one of the problems of relying on it too much. But there's that kind of magic where it's just this black box where the system is just doing stuff and we don't really understand why. Um, And that can be pretty compelling when it works. Mm -hmm. There's another kind of magic, which is where I am the wizard, right? Where I know that, that that I have a magic object or that I can make a gesture and say a word and something across the room happens. And I think that that kind of intentional interface is especially exciting. You know, mm. that when, we, when we marry um, the the knobs and dials of, of, of physical objects that we use to digital systems, or when we have uh, an environment that can, or, or a wearable that can note my gesture and hear me say a word. Well, that's Harry Potter stuff, right? Mm. Say a word, make a gesture. That's a spell. Right. And, you know, when you know sort of the simple combination, then that's magic. And so I, you know, I think that sometimes it's not so much, let's make our light bulbs so smart that they know when to turn on, it's just maybe make it so that the light bulbs pay attention to me, Right. So and I can make a quick gesture and turn them on. That's right. more powerfully magic. And I think that that intentional uh, interaction with the physical world is, uh, is especially exciting, perhaps more so than some of this predictive, passive, just make everything automatic mm-hmm. kind of magic.
0: You mentioned you mentioned gestures, you know, what do you think the interaction model? Do you think there's going to be one primary interaction model of the future? Or do you think we're going to have a mix, um, you know, of speech and gestures and everything else?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a mix. Uh, you know, I think that there's there's often this kind of gut reaction of, well, I don't want to do all of my computing by gesture. That seems terrible. And, and that's true. That would be terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, with your arms in the air for the minority report thing. And so that just won't work. But it's, it's pretty good for, I don't know, kind of big sort of coarse gestures or, or you know, you imagine you're at some, like, a, at the mall in front of the directory map or, you know, or, or some sort of big shared screen. Those kinds of sort of short-term, very temporary, broad kind of interactions. Where I want to grab something off of my TV and throw it into my phone. You know, very sort of quick actions. Mm-hmm. Gesture can be useful for that, but I think that this idea of that oh, this will replace that is a is a sort of a narrow but understandable view. I mean, we're seeing that with smartwatches now. Why would I want my this on my smartwatch when I've got my phone? You know, it's not either or. It's, we're getting into a world of and, and, and. right, and, and we see that even with the devices that we use every day. We tend to think about, oh, here's a keyboard and mouse interface. Here's a speech interface. Here's a touch interface. Here's, you know, natural gesture. Here's camera vision. But It turns out more and more that the, the devices we use every day that we have in our pockets and our handbags or on our desks, use all those things.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: it's, and it's more of a choose the right thing that's most convenient for your context.
0: Right, that makes a lot of sense.
1: It's the combinations that are exciting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that um, that's where things can be really surprising. Um, my friend Aral Balkan, a couple of years ago put together this hack at a hackathon just overnight, where you know he brought a Kinect and a projector and a phone and a laptop and basically this thing where it's you know you're watching TV and the Kinect sees you reach out and make a grab motion, it takes a screenshot of what's happening there, and you touch it, the you touch the phone the screen on your phone and it just ap- magically appears there so the effect is just like grabbing an image and throwing it into your phone
0: that's awesome
1: it is but then you think about you know it's a simple interactions for both of those right mm-hmm. where it's just like a grab action and a touch action mm-hmm. and it's like they're so fundamental to the two things but it's the combination of them that suddenly makes them powerful and surprising
0: mm-hmm Totally. That makes sense. That's awesome. But it's also, it's knowing when, when to use which, right? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, thought and intention that goes into that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, when when Leap Motion came out a couple of years ago, and for people who aren't familiar with it, it's just this little, this little gizmo that's almost like a, it's kind of like a mini connect in a way that tracks your finger and hand motions above a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, it got a lot of buzz and it came out and then it, it kind of flopped. And one of the reasons was that the software that people used for it really just used it to kind of mimic a mouse cursor. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, the mouse is a great pointer. You know, there's, it's like you really can't out-mouse the mouse when it comes to pointing <laughs> the screen. And in fact, our hands are really clumsy for these really fine interactions. And there wasn't enough kind of questioning of well, what can I use this for? And I think it's a common problem whenever we see a new kind of input or output or medium in general. What could I use this for that I can't already do with existing technology? Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things for that is you know well, you could start using this to point at things that aren't on the screen. For example, you know, to create this, you know, if if the computer now knows that I'm pointing at something, some physical object, then I'm creating a, a physical digital bridge. You yep. know, that, that then becomes really. Compelling, but I think you're right. It's you know, what are you using this stuff for? And sometimes the old tech is better than the new tech for that thing. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out what the new tech is better at, uh, and then you know, you put it put it in a way that that is that fits naturally into the way that people move through the world.
0: Sure, sure, makes a lot of sense. Sounds hard to do, but makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, well, it's exciting. I mean, you know, the the machines are starting to understand in a primitive way all the different ways that we communicate as human beings Mm from touch to speech to facial expression um you know how do we how do we start to and, and those combinations are so powerful for us you know in human to human how can we start to use that in human to machine too it's mm-hmm. a long way to go i mean it's very primitive right now
0: yeah yeah well okay so i have one final question for you which i'd love to hear what people like you who are working on interesting projects but what other projects or people are you are catching your your eye lately well like i said i, th- I think that
1: uh david rose who we talked about before mm-hmm. I, I, is really kind of a great kind of way to think about and present how to think about these um these interactions I think the, the the stuff too that I'm most excited about are uh, some of these cross-device things. So we're, we've started to see, you know, with Apple's Continuity, for example, mm-hmm. a, a, what I would call a really basic attempt to solve this problem of of moving information from one device to another. So if I'm starting an email on my phone and I'm just like, oh, this is taking me forever. I'm at my laptop. I can just sort of click a button on my laptop and it just pulls that email right over and I'm, I'm going straight through. But it doesn't take in this idea of device to device interaction. And so I think one of some examples, you know, I've talked a few about a couple of those things from the thing that Aral did with the, the grabbing the, the image off of the TV or the thing that I did with Larry Legend about, you know, shaking information from one device to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, MIT Media Lab obviously has a lot of really interesting uh, projects with this. Their tangible media group uh, did a project called Thaw, which lets you press your Press uh, your phone against a, uh, a laptop screen, for example, and start to actually move information between the two screens, sort wow. of based on that physical contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also sort of recognize the dimensionality of the phone itself so that, you know, they've got a demo where there's a game that, you know, you can put your phone on the screen and a little character can jump on top of the phone, you know, so it's not just screen to screen, but it's about this this physicality. And, and that's the thing that I think is really the interesting thing to play with right now is how can we move the point of interaction off of the screen and recognize the physicality of these devices that we have. Sometimes it's devices that won't have screens at all, and other times that kind of incidentally do.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the
1: things that you know, I, I, one of the things that made mobile so powerful is that it introduced this this idea of action at the point of inspiration. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wherever I am, I've got this powerful computer and internet connection to, to, to act at, at the point of inspiration. Problem is, is that that also distracts us from the point of inspiration, right? The more connected we are, the more disconnected we are from the thing right in front of us, that we're always inserting a screen between us and the, and the world. Mm-hmm. I think that the really exciting stuff that's happening is actually making interaction with the point of inspiration, So, uh, you know, that that I can actually interact with the object itself in some way rather than be like, oh, that object is interesting. Let me now go and dive into my phone and ignore that object while I do something with it. So, for example, uh, Neiman Marcus has this thing called uh, the memory mirror, Mm. which is basically, basically just a giant monitor with a camera, right? But it acts as a mirror. And it's called the memory mirror because it remembers what it's just seen. So, you know, you can do a turn in front of the mirror and do a little 360, and then watch it so you can actually see how these this clothes that you're wearing look in 360. Or you can compare what you just tried on before to what you're wearing right now in a split view. Or you can do a turn and you can actually see the color of the garment change you know, mm-hmm. sort of see what this looks like in different colors. And what that's doing is, or and maybe crucially, you know, which is a really popular behavior is you can take is it can take a picture that you can then share to your friends, you know, or to you know to your partner. How do I look in this? Mm-hmm. Which which that is is itself a really basic behavior that a lot of people are hacking by you know using their phone and taking a picture and sending it. You know, why not just sort of interact with the mirror itself and let it do that job for you? So it's sort of just pushing that interaction. <laughs> Into the point of inspiration rather than making interaction possible nearby the point of inspiration.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That's an interesting example, too. I'd love to try that. Um. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty neat. <laughs> well, Josh, thank you so much for making time today. I really appreciate it. It's a great way to end the week. Oh, my pleasure.
1: Thanks so much, Mary.
0: You can reach Josh through his Twitter handle at Big Medium Josh. Thank you for joining us. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.